Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're glad you're here with us again listening to our show. We've got a very interesting segment coming up uh, in just a few minutes. But before we get to that, I would like to uh, get some conversation time with my co-host, Lou Wise, who's up in New Jersey. Lou, how are you today? How you doing, Tim? I understand we're going to do some voodoo magic today. We are. Is that, yeah. is that right? Okay, so let me uh, get into uh, our postscript for our uh, show last week. Uh, I think we're going to skip the news uh, up front because we've got a, a commentary, news commentary section at the back end today. Something that's kind of interesting, and in some right. cases, it may even make want to make your blood boil. But <clears throat> last week we had Chris Kuehl of uh, Armada Corporate Intelligence discussing the Credit Managers Index, which uh, looks very rosy and uh, uh, looking good. All the numbers that have come out uh, over these last four or five weeks have been terrific. Even uh, today, they came out with the numbers, 227,000 jobs added yesterday. Sorry, yesterday. Uh, Mr. Trump, I'm sure, has a lot to do with that. At least he'll take the credit for that. But that's okay. He's our president. Uh, We had Patrick O'Reilly, CEO and founder of Factory Fix, discussing his uh, company. Names to help manufacture by by performing and providing Uber-type business model for the machining of parts. I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. He's uh, located in Chicago. He's planning to open up a couple of branches here on the East Coast, New York, uh, I think Massachusetts. And uh, if he's successful at it, he's planning to open them up all over the country if Uber doesn't steal the idea from him in the first place. (laughs) Uh, But it's a pretty neat idea, and he's got qualified people, retirees, part-time people who don't want to work full-time. But, uh, you know, whatever you need, you put in a a request for your need, and uh, they've got a a storehouse of uh, skilled and credited uh, employees who've been working their jobs for 20, 30, 40 years, and it's a pretty neat discussion. I uh, highly recommend that you listen to it if you're a manufacturer uh, looking for workers, because I understand that there's a skill gap, and there's uh, (laughs) not enough people to fill the jobs uh, as we have now, but uh, take a listen to it. It's uh, pretty interesting stuff. Tim? With us are two gentlemen from a company called Voodoo Manufacturing. The first is Jim Allen, who is the director of manufacturing, and his uh, associate, Max Freifeld, who is the CEO of Voodoo Manufacturing. Max, I want to go to you first and have you explain to our listeners what is Voodoo Manufacturing. Sure. Uh, Happy to explain what Voodoo Manufacturing is. Um, So we are a plastics manufacturer based in Brooklyn, New York, and we have a factory here with 160 3D printers, and we make plastic parts on demand for customers. Uh, This is everything from keychains and promotional items to actual end-use parts that are going into products and factories around the world. Uh, Because we use 3D printers, we can accept a CAD file and turn around parts next day Um, or we can do up to 10,000 units in two weeks or less. And so really, we're offering an alternative solution to many of the molding solutions out there. Um, You can work with us, and you'll have a much more flexible manufacturing experience. Uh, Max, that type of manufacturing, do you see a lot of interest in orders on the low end? Yeah, 3D printing traditionally has been used for prototyping. Uh, which is, by definition, a, a very uh, low-volume you know, solution. Um, I right. think the most interesting thing that has proved is that people order higher volume uh, of parts, up to 10,000 units. Uh, actually, the biggest order that we've done is for 18,000 units to date. That's quite a nice, always a nice order to have. 
Now, I also see that you're a uh, an avid coffee drinker, which is an interesting comment we don't often get on uh, on bios. So, are coffee mugs uh, something that you guys print? Not yet. Um, we haven't made any coffee mugs. Um, I think the reason I added that to my bio is mainly because uh, we kind of work around the clock, and sometimes <laughs> it's to make that happen. I can so, so, so we want to make we want to make it clear to our audience that you have nothing to do with voodoo, correct? Correct. We we sometimes get calls requesting services for voodoo priests, which is not a service that we offer. <laughs> so Jim, think you about are not that. A, uh, Jim, you're not a voodoo priest by trade. You are actually in the uh, director of manufacturing. That's correct. <laughs> so a good place to so, be. So let me ask you a question because I, I think in, in our prior conversations that there was some comments about that there are metal parts that you're making aside from just plastic. Is that correct? No, at this point, we are not doing anything in metal. All of our parts are oh. plastic. We do work with local companies to plate some of the parts that we make, uh, such as the trophies and, and other things where we apply a foam layer to the parts. So, now, so how how long have you been into 3D uh, printing? I mean, it's not that old of an industry, and it certainly is in its infancy. But how long have you been doing it? How long have you been involved with it? I've been in 3D printing for close to, to uh, six years now. I started off at Freeplays, another 3D printing company here in New York. Mm-hmm where I helped design and build their factory and then also work with them to uh, obtain economic development incentives. And I'm doing a similar role here at Voodoo Manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Max, one of the things that uh, all manufacturing is looking at is the integration of software with manufacturing for their particular plants. But you, you do it in a very unique way. Why don't you explain that to our listeners? Definitely. So Voodoo uh, is built from the ground up with software in mind. And what this really means is, you know, our base manufacturing machine is uh, a 3D printer. Um, And because we have so many of them, we have a pretty difficult logistical problem to solve because we're managing 160 machines uh, with only two to three people actually running those machines at a time. And so... We took it upon ourselves from the very beginning of Voodoo to build software that actually networks all the machines together and handles a lot of basic tasks like job assignments. So you don't have to worry about which job you're sending to which printer. Uh, and that integrates all the way up to our order flow system so that we can make sure that we're going out on time, they're started on the machines on time, and we have enough time in our pipeline to do all of the post-processing and packaging work. Max, does the setup that you have involve uh, conveyor belts where the parts once printed get placed off the printer on the conveyor belt and away they go, or is that all very manual? So today, a lot of those processes are actually quite manual, and uh, this is something I'm sure Jim can go into for the future. But most people don't recognize that the company is only about 18 months old. So in the first phase of our build-out, we focus entirely on the software challenges that we can automate. The next phase is going to be about the physical and hardware automation that are really going to help us scale from 160 printers to 1,000 or 10,000 machines. What were were some of the software challenges you had in terms of integration? Yeah, absolutely. We were were lucky enough when we started to have a relatively close relationship with the uh, printer manufacturer, a company from Brooklyn called MakerBot. Um, And so... You know, because we were able to integrate with them from a technical perspective, all of the challenges that we faced were more on the algorithm side. Uh, you know, our CTO, Oliver, is a software whiz. Uh, you know, we went to college together, and we can pretty much build anything we need. Uh, it's just a greater question of when you're building a job assignment algorithm, what's the most effective way to do that? Um, and, and those are the problems that we've looked at over the last 18 months. So let me let me ask you a question. I'm a, I'm a prospective uh, client, 
and uh, you've seen our logo, the Manufacturing Talk Radio logo, and it's kind of convoluted, and it's got factory buildings on it, and it's got a microphone on it, and it's you know multicolored and so on. So here, I, I'm going to want you to uh, place an order with you for, let's say, keychain. How do we do that? What's the what are the first steps to get involved? Sure, for keychains, which is certainly one of our staple items, uh, we can start with the logo. Um, luckily, you already have an excellent logo that's been uh, designed and and is large enough that we can convert it into 3D. And so that conversion into 3D is basically the first step. You need a 3D design that you can send to the printers. Um, because it looks like we're looking at a four-color design, uh, yellow, black, white, and red, um, and possibly the microphone, five. It's definitely one of the more complicated items that we'd be printing. Um, but we do have some software that actually automatically will take a 2D graphic and pull it out into 3D and separate those layers so that we can print each of them in the right color. Uh, from there... Once we have a design, you can look at it in 3D, you can spin it around and see it on your computer. And once you give us the thumbs up, we can get you 10,000 in two weeks if you're ready. Wow. Usually that, design process, usually that design process takes uh, between a day and a week. For keychains, we can usually do everything same day. Interesting. Now, Jim, uh, you've got 160 machines. Are they uh, circled together like kind of Stoga wagons so you can fight off the Indians as these parts are finished, or is it one long line? What's the what's the physical arrangement you're dealing with? Well, if you've seen heard of the analogy of a server farm, that's the way it is. Or a more basic example is stacks in a library, bookshelves. We've got aluminum racks that the printers are stacked too high and are running about 20 printers long on each row with another group of printers at the back of the row of, of six to eight. So within each bay, we have about 48, 46 printers in a bay, and we have uh, close to four bays of them like that. So that's where you get the 160 printers. Okay. So I saw a photograph of uh, your plant, your, your internal manufacturing areas and uh, it was all lit up in blue lights and red lights and so on and I understand that you actually threw a party back there in the middle of your server farm uh, is, is that true yep the party's called filament jam uh, which is a common failure mode for the printers when the plastic called filament jams in the nozzle oh. uh, we deal with on a daily basis but also a great name for a party uh, this was the second annual Filament Jam, uh, Filament Jam 2016, and I think we had over 250 people in attendance. It was great. Yeah, it looked like uh, looked like a lot of fun and uh, looked very very uh, space age, very cool. Yeah, that's one of the, the more fun things that we can do with our software. Since all the printers are connected and we can address them individually, we were able to put on a light show with all the machines. Yeah, yeah that's very cool. <laughs> Uh, Jim, these parts, once they are printed, are they already fairly cool to the touch so that they can be removed and moved on to packaging or whatever the next step is? Yeah, they're completely cool to the touch. They're basically at room temperature. We extrude the parts at 230 degrees Celsius through the nozzle and build it up layer by layer, but it, the cooling is almost instantaneous because the layers are mm. so thin and small in diameter. Okay. Now, logistically, because I'm curious, and, I, and you've got quite a uh, fascinating homepage for your website. Logistically, what kind of challenges do you have as you've got, you know, 40 printers presenting parts? It must be run, grab, box, run. <laughs> well, I'm a firm believer in lean manufacturing, so I don't like seeing a lot of work in process or whip sitting around and I'm trying to minimize wasted motion. And we, one of the, some of the things that we're looking at is automation through software as well as hardware. And what we want to do is be able to especially jobs that are running continuously. We're producing hundreds, if not thousands of parts 
that when the printer finishes the job, an operator will know that it's there or some other type of automation that we would then say harvest that part, take it off the printer, put a clean plate on there, and start the job. And all of that we're doing in, in different steps, but as I said, on the software and on the hardware side of things to automate those processes. Okay. So, yeah, we also, our software system is basically capable of planning out uh, the factory um, operations for a day. So we'll know not only when trims are done, but we'll also know hours before they finish exactly what's going to happen. And so it really becomes a scheduling problem. Uh, and so if you stagger things appropriately, um, there can be constant work for a human or, you know, eventually, hopefully, a robot. Uh, and, um, and that's probably how we'll deal with that long term. Now, when you're talking about plastics, what particular plastics are you talking about? And, and Max or, or Jim, either one of you can answer that who's ever uh, more versed in uh, plastics. Right now, probably the uh, majority of what we're doing, probably 90% of it is what they call polylactic acid, which is known in sh uh, short form of PLA. We also do thermoplastic urethane, or TPU, which is a flexible rubber-like material. And we can also do more on a case-by-case -case basis in nylon. So we're constantly looking at different materials on the market to see whether or not they fit into um, our business model and fit with our customer needs. Okay. Now, this is interesting to me, that the, uh, both the, the hard and particularly the flexible plastic. What's the most curious part you've seen so far? Uh, <laughs> there's certainly some projects that we can't talk about. Um, right. We've seen some really cool things uh, on the order of, um, we actually printed a bunch of parts for a company that was making uh, what is called a, uh, an open source EEG headset. Um, which is a brain machine interface. It's this really interesting looking helmet with lots of wires sticking out of it that reads your brain waves, uh, connects to a computer, and they were actually doing a lot of research with it um, to control things like prosthetics or even video games. Um, and we've made over a thousand of those and they've gone out to different research universities. But they're pretty cool looking. Uh, we also get a lot of orders where we don't even know what it is. Um, those are usually lower volume orders. Uh, but we'll make things without quite knowing what they are uh, and send right. them out to people next day because that's what we do. Okay. Now, is the, is the software to do this fairly common out in the marketplace? Uh, 3D design software or? Um, yeah, 3D, 3D design software. Yeah, so any engineer um, or even like a, a CAD uh, certified draftsman or something has experience and can design in 3D. The most interesting thing that's been happening in the last five years is uh, traditionally very expensive design packages like SolidWorks or Katia. Um, you know, there are consumer versions that are starting to come out. There are browser-based design tools like Onshape uh, or Tinkercad, uh, which basically allow users to get started for and uh, it's actually very easy to design pretty much any object in 3D. Um, we had uh, uh, somebody from the Wall Street Journal come out to the factory recently, and after the tour, she took it upon herself to design a phone case in 3D using Tinkercad and submitted the order and placed it uh, after only a few hours of design work. And that was her first time designing a 3D object. Interesting, interesting. Well, we're going to be right back with Jim Allen and Max of Voodoo Manufacturing in just a moment. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. Elevate your career and stay ahead of the curve with EISM. Brought to you by the Institute for Supply Management. EISM is the first on-the-go lifestyle-compatible learning initiative in the industry. It features hyper-short 15-minute modules and guided learning courses that can be completed in as few as three weeks just right for you or your team. It's the world's largest one-stop online learning shop for supply management. 
Register today at ismelearning.org. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment, components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials? 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason ThomasNet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it. And it's all free. Go to ThomasNet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Okay, we are back with two gentlemen from a company called Voodoo Manufacturing here on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Max Freifield, who is the CEO, and Jim Allen, who is the director of manufacturing for the company. Jim, I want to go to you. We were talking about some of the interesting parts that you make, and I see on your website you have this orange plastic dinosaur with something that looks like it was intended to be in its mouth. Can you explain that part to our listeners? Uh, this is Max. I might actually be the best one to describe that. That's a really interesting story. That is the T-Rex showerhead. Um, <laughs> okay. The T-Rex showerhead was designed by our co-founder, Jonathan, back in 2014. And uh, the, the actual T-Rex skull model uh, was already online. And we decided that we wanted a more exciting showerhead at home. Uh, so he put a uh, shower nozzle in, in the middle, uh, put it on the online website Thingiverse, which is a sharing website for 3D printable designs. Uh, it actually got picked up, and uh, I think Mashable did a story on it where the title of the article was, This is the Reason That 3D Printing Needs to Exist. Uh, and since then, we started selling them on Etsy. It's the only product that Voodoo actually makes that we also designed. That's amazing. That's great. I imagine. Yeah, I think we sold almost ten thousand dollars worth of shower heads. Uh, they're great. <laughs> I imagine the kids have got to love them. I mean, what a great thing to have. We can do it in any color, even glow in the dark. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Listen, why don't you give us your uh, uh, website address and an email if there are those who would like to communicate with you. Uh, further on your uh, products and company and so on? Of course. So our website is voodoomfg.com, V-O-O-D-O-O-M-F-G.com. And you can reach Jim or I uh, by email. My email is max, M-A-X, at voodoomfg.com. Jim's email is jim.allen at voodoomfg.com. And uh, we, we do a lot of consulting work, so we're happy to talk about projects, even if you're not sure uh, if it makes sense to go with 3D printing yet. Right, and that's one of the, that was going to be my next question, so thanks for the segue, Max. Uh, what is digital manufacturing as you guys see it, as the world sees it, and how is it changing the physical product as we know? Great question. Digital manufacturing is, is definitely an umbrella term that covers a lot of different tools. Um, I think... Traditionally, people look at digital manufacturing as taking the factories of 20, 30 years ago and outfitting them with, you know, modern sensors and networking hardware to bring them into the 21st century. Uh, we look at digital manufacturing a little bit differently. For us, digital manufacturing is about building a factory on top of digital manufacturing machines. And in our mind, those are tools that will accept a 3D file 
and output a physical part without any further input. So a 3D printer is a great example of a digital manufacturing machine. Uh, it does its own material handling. Um, you can basically send it a 3D file over the wire. Uh, the CAM computer-aided manufacturing part where you're doing tool path design is basically taken care of. Uh, and you can have a part printed uh, in a matter of minutes or hours. It's a lot easier than CNC molding, uh, machining or injection molding where there's usually a lengthy setup process um, right. that's required in running. So we kind of look at it as this black box. We want the Voodoo factory to be a black box with one input, your 3D file, and one output, the number of parts you need. Interesting. Uh, Jim, I just want to go to you for a minute as director of manufacturing. You know, I was asking you earlier about the parts as they get finished on the printers and taking them from the printers and putting them into their next phase to eventually get them into a uh, place where they can either be, you know, where they can be picked up by the customer or shipped out. Do you see, and we've done a show, we've done several shows on robotics. Do you see some of that being handled by uh, actual robots? Absolutely. Um, I think that's going to be the way that we're going to be able to scale our factory to the next level and beyond is through robotics. It's going to be something where um, we need to minimize the labor that's involved, at least from the human standpoint, of a lot of the repetitive uh, tasks that are very routine, boring, and maybe in the case where we're not here, like on the second or third shift, that a robot could handle it. The idea is that we could essentially run this thing lights out. Now, that doesn't mean that we would not, that we not need any people to run it because what we see is there's still a lot of value add and humans are needed in this equation. Because right now, given the, the level of the technology, in order to clean the parts, meaning taking off support material and other things that require to sending the parts to a customer, requires some human interaction and some human um inference and, and understanding of what needs to be done. It can't be automated at least at this very uh, expeditiously and uh, low cost. So those are things that I think are further down the road. But in order for us to remain competitive with overseas manufacturing and, and other low cost technologies and be able to compete, not just at the 10,000 part level, but let's say the 100,000 part level and really get into that that chasm, what we look at, is you know, between a prototype and being able to go to mass manufacturing, that's where automation and robotics come into play. Right, right. Uh, Max, on the, on the issue of, or on the topic of 3D printing and how it's evolving, we know it's been around since the late 1960s, and it was kind of in the background, and like many things, one day, amazingly, it seems like the light goes on and People are into 3D printing in all kinds of ways. Is this actually rapidly taking off now compared to, say, 10 years ago? The biggest change, and actually I think 11 years ago is when the first 3D printing patents expired, the industry was built around. The biggest change in the last 11 years has been uh, the expiration of those original patents, which means that businesses come up with low-cost uh, commoditized hardware, essentially. So and that, that is actually the foundation of what made Voodoo possible in the last five years, is that we can buy 160 machines that used to cost twenty to $50,000 a piece, and today are only $2,000 a piece. Okay. So um, that sounds like one of the big changes, and, and that's very common with electronics at the consumer level, but this is more the industrial level, is that the actual machine to make the parts is coming down dramatically in price. That is also one of the assumptions I think that we work on is that machines across the board are coming down in price. And so the capabilities that we'll have access to in this price range are only going to increase. Um, I mean, to go back to your original question a little bit more, uh, a lot of the hype around 3D printing the last 10 years has been because so many of these uh, machines are now available for consumers to get their hands and eyes on. Even though right. that isn't where the most value is being created in the industry, uh, it's really helped people get eyes on the technology. And I think that's made our business possible because 
more people know about it. 3D printing uh, 10 years ago was a tool that only engineers really knew about. And today we work with a lot of marketing companies and these people already know what 3D printing is. Okay. Do you see your customer mix? Well, let me ask you two different ways. Your customer mix today is mostly uh, you're selling to other businesses. Do you have any consumer customers in your mix? No, we're actually, we're all uh, B2B or B2B to C is kind of what we call it because we sell to people who are selling to consumers. Uh, we're trying to remain a manufacturer uh, at the end of the day rather than a consumer brand. Okay. It's on you know, our focus on internal efficiencies and building a factory that's not only scalable, but also will get more cost effective over time. What particular industries uh, are being served, Max? And either Max or, or Jim can answer this. Your customer base, and I'm not asking you to name names, but what kind of industry segments are they in? We have two main industry segments that we serve. Um, we kind of break it into marketing and advertising and hardware and engineering. Uh, from okay. there, it can be divided out further, but you know, just at the highest level, it's about half and half right now in terms of what we do. Um, the hardware and engineering side is parts like uh, that I was mentioning earlier on the show, the open source EEG headset for reading brainwaves. Uh, that was a Kickstarter company. Um, they raised $400,000 on Kickstarter to produce these. And rather than going to China, uh, they decided to work with us to have all of their plastic parts produced. Um, we also do a number of parts for manufacturing facilities across the country who are basically building custom jigs and fixtures that help them make their factory more efficient. Working with us is generally a lot cheaper than uh, having your in-house um, you know, CNC machinists make the parts out of metal. So if plastic is a viable solution, uh, we've seen a lot of people coming to us for those types of applications as well. It's interesting. That'll be something that uh, we're going to certainly watch over the next you know, three to five years is that conversion of metal to plastic or 3D printers who are actually printing in metal itself. That's a lot of what we think is going to happen fairly soon. Luke? Yeah, a matter of fact, we uh, saw a story back uh, about five, six months ago, and I believe it was in Sweden or Norway, and they were building a bridge across a small river, a stream, and we're building it. Uh, they were making this bridge, uh, 3D printing, on location. They started on one side, and this machine just went across the top of the bridge, and it was building it as it was going across, and it got to the other side, and the bridge was complete. So there are beginning to be some very large usage, usages for uh, 3D printing. Uh, we, we saw a, a trucking firm that was uh, building engine blocks for very large uh, uh, truck transports, also a 3D printed block. And then, of course, they did additional machining and so on. So there, there are beginning to be some very incredible um, uh, uses that are developing, in, including uh, on the International Space Station, where they have a 3D printer that could replace metal parts that break instead of sending up a $30 million uh, uh, rocket ship to replace a screw. Uh, they can make the screw right on the space station. So th we, we found this to be an incredible uh, topic. We've talked about it a lot, and uh, we appreciate uh, your conversation on this. And uh, the only thing that I could think of is that uh, you better get working on uh, our logo. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, you know, get your people talking to us about it, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll help you pay for the show. Great. We'll uh, have 10000 at your doorstep in two weeks. Okay. okay. <laughs> That'd be quite a number. Uh, Max, before we let you go, uh, and, and, and Jim, 
so you guys can get back to work. Where do you see your company, Voodoo Manufacturing, and I won't go five to ten years because that's like an eon in, uh, in time these days, but just uh, two, three years down the road? Um, so there's a lot of different ways to answer this question, but the, the highest level answer is that our goal is to invest a lot in software and automation so that in the next five years we can produce plastic parts at a tenth of the cost that we're doing it today. And that means that if we're cost competitive with injection molding in the one to 10,000 unit range right now, we want to be cost competitive up to 100,000 units. Uh, and there's a lot of engineering work that goes into that. Um, but we've kind of run the high level calculations and we think it's possible. So once we hit that, we'll think, we think that 3D printing will really have arrived as a manufacturing tool for uh, end use plastic parts. I would agree. You would have to get to those kind of volumes, and I have no doubt that Voodoo uh, Manufacturing is w well on the course to doing it. We've been speaking with Max Freifeld, who is the CEO of Voodoo Manufacturing, and Jim Allen, who's the director of manufacturing. If you want to look these folks up, their website is voodoomfg.com. Check them out. They do some interesting stuff. Max, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much to you both. Right, thank you, Jim and Max. Thanks, guys. And we'll keep in touch with you guys because we want to see where this goes in the next two to three years. So we're going to come back around on this subject. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. Lou spoke about it at the beginning of the show. We're going to talk about some of the news items that Lou and I read on a regular basis about what's happening in manufacturing. You know, it's a, an industry in evolution, and it's evolving faster than many of us uh, really can keep pace with, and that's part of the reason for Manufacturing Talk Radio is to help our listeners keep track of what's happening in manufacturing and at what pace and in what areas. Lou, what's, uh, what's at the top of the news for what's happening in manufacturing in terms of what you've got on your news desk? Well, to tell you the truth, some of it is pretty shocking. I mean, a lot of the topics have to do with things that uh, uh, we and others have been talking about uh, all year, two years, maybe skill gaps and uh, technology and uh, bring jobs back or take jobs away or give them to prisoners or, you know, whatever, whatever has come up, we've talked about it. But there's some really interesting things here. Uh, uh, there's an article here was in NBC News. As Trump stresses manufacturing jobs, how important are labor costs for the automakers? According to uh, a high-ranking automotive uh, insider who told NBC, he said, we'd kill to cut a nickel off the price of the car. But Trump, Trump is going to be bringing in Land Rovers a $36,000 car presently, and he's going to or wants to add a $17,000 import duty on top of a $36,000 car. Uh, I'm not sure how that's going to help uh, our relations with foreign countries. I think uh, Land Rover sales are going to go into the toilet, but that's okay. That's not an American company. <clears throat> so I've been told. So we don't care about our friends. We just want to screw them. So uh, I don't know how that's going to work out. It seems as though people just stop buying Land Rovers and immediately go buy a uh, Chevy uh, Taurus or a Ford Taurus, rather. Um, that, that's, that's one example of uh, absurdities that uh, I saw this morning. Um you know, they're talking about jobs coming back, and they've been talking a lot about that for a long time. And uh, yesterday's uh, jobs report came out that we added a strong 227,000 jobs in January. That sounds pretty strong. I, I don't think that means that 227,000 jobs came back from uh, uh, the, the Sino district. Um, I don't think no. that's where they're coming from. Uh, so that means that people are beginning to uh, – manufacturing numbers are up. The ISM PMI number came out on uh, Tuesday, uh, and it came out at 56.0. Uh, 
That's like five months in a row that has been really progressing. The non-manufacturing numbers also went up uh, at 56 point something or other, I think 56.5. So everything is looking rosy. So why do we want to upset the apple cart? Do you have any thoughts on that, uh, Tim? (laughs) Well, I have no idea. I have no idea whether or not all of these uh, supposed tariffs are going to really happen. I think it's a lot of saber rattling at this point, uh, and we'll have to see if that really happens. If anybody's good with a history book, you'll note that isolationism and protectionism has failed for every country that's tried it every time they've tried it. Over the last two or three hundred years. That's correct. (laughs) Bad economic policy. Yeah, and now we have a, a baby isolationist in uh, the tea house. Yeah, uh, I meant right. White House. Sorry, didn't mean to. Yeah, he hasn't put the he hasn't put the Trump sign up yet outside the West Wing. Yeah, yeah, well, it's coming. They haven't found enough gold in our treasury to do it. <laughs> another no, thing, I, I, I co- go ahead. Another well, God, if you're still on topic, go ahead. <laughs> I just uh, we're we're in a wait and see mode when it comes to uh, tariffs and the wall and all the chatter that you hear in any presidential election, which turns into a lot of thumpering uh, during the election cycle and not necessarily into policy and reality once they're in office. Well, to tell you the truth, uh, the last week or two. I I guess it's since uh, the new administration is in office. The news cycles on a daily basis is more like watching a soap opera. It's not real. What's going on is not real. And they, they, they chatter amongst themselves. They argue. They bitch. They moan. They, they're still not doing anything. They're still plotting against the president on, in certain regards to take away his power of this or that. You know, we got to get past that and realize that we got this guy for four years, and that's it. You know, unless he does something evil, devilish, or criminal, and then maybe we won't have him. But as of right now, we got him. He's it. That's right. Well, what else have you got on your news slate there? I saw I saw Citizens Bank, which is a online uh, lending institution, and uh, I, I couldn't help but notice you know interest rates that they were advertising, and they were advertising you know two point some two point two seven, three point two two. Uh, and then you click to the educational uh, loan, student loan section, and then you're faced with 8.7. 8.7 on a $50,000 loan at 8.7, the weakest people in the economy to afford to pay the highest rate. What's wrong with this picture? <clears throat> That's number one. Number two, when you pay back the 50000 it takes you 20 years, right? and you're going to pay $102,000 back. One hundred and two, right. And there's a 40% chance that that student never graduated because that's the number. 40% don't finish. Right. And that number I'm throwing around is only $50,000 loan. That's only one year. That's so about you, right. So, so if you go for four years, you're borrowing two hundred thousand dollars. You two hundred thousand dollars. You're going to pay back five to four to five hundred thousand dollars. It's going to cost you a thousand a month to repay it if you get a job. Right. Because now you don't have skills. Manufacturing's booming. We hired two hundred twenty-seven thousand people yesterday. But you went to college to get a degree because mommy and daddy are in the parent trap, and they convince you that grandma wants to see the first one to graduate college, and you're the guy. 
So <laughs> to make grandma happy, your mom and pop happy, you're going to go into hock. That that mean that I mean you're 20 years, 25 years. You come out at 20, at 50 years old, you've just about finished paying off your educational loan. That's right. Well, I know and you still people... may be living with mom and pop. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I know people in their 60s who are retiring who are still paying off either their own student loans or their kids' student loans. Oh, absolutely. And this, this is the next bubble for those of you who are listening and wondering, okay, we're past the dot-com bomb and we're past the Great Recession and the housing bubble. What's the next bubble? Well, this is it, folks, student loans. The expectation of student loans getting repaid, even though they say if Osama bin Laden had a student loan they'd have found him 10 years earlier, lose right. They can't afford, they don't make enough money to pay back the student loan. The default rate is coming. The default rate and the the, the number that really blows me away is that 40% don't finish. So here right. you're don't now 22 you're 22, 23, 24 years old. Sure, you got your mother and father paying you for your health care because that's the only thing that you got left out of Obamacare. And uh, now what do you do? You don't have a skill. You don't have any training. You haven't gone into taking a look at all the things that many uh, government and private agencies and state-funded uh, organizations like NJIT, the New Jersey Institute of Technology, and uh, the Institute of uh, Supply Management, who all talk about training and go and take a look at um, uh, vocational training. And uh, I, I still see that sign. I brought this up a hundred times on the show already. The sign on Route 80 in Patterson, New Jersey. You want a plumbing job? Six months, $80,000. And then the other one is a welding job. I think it was 77000 and also the same six months. And you're not in hock, and you're making good right. money. Right. Well, that's going to be the biggest problem with student loans. Uh, I think the average student carries something like $37,000 in student loan debt. But if you're anywhere past a four-year degree, you're in six figures. Most of the doctors and lawyers uh, who – got student loans that go to college are struggling to pay them back. I don't know that they'll ever get paid back. I think the expectation of the government is they will, but if the government did to student loans what they did to um, the housing bubble and junk bonds, which was called mark to market, where the value of the uh, securities was marked to zero, uh, I think we'd have a real shockwave go through the federal the federal government in terms of its finances. I don't know if those student loans can be paid back. You're exactly right, Lou. These kids, and it's tragic, are getting burdened with tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt for an education. It's ridiculous. Well, not, I agree with everything you said, but not only that, they're charging them, the kids, the investment into the kids of our up-and-coming future of this country, they're charging them the max amount of interest rate, 8, 9, 10%. Yep. And the yep. better schools, the better schools, for example, George Washington, because I have a granddaughter who's looking to go to school there, and they don't give any tuition money. None. You, you can have a 5.10 rating. No, no loan for you. <laughs> well, I think if those of you who are listening uh, don't understand why the federal government is on hock, the, in hock for it, the federal government backs student loans. Banks give them, and only reason they give them is because they're federally backed. Otherwise, the banks wouldn't loan ten cents on a student loan. They know to an eighteen to an eighteen-year-old, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So what happens is the kid defaults, the loan gets kicked back to the federal government, the federal government pays the bank off, the federal government now owns the debt and has to chase the debt. So it's coming. How's that work? 
Yeah. <laughs> How's that working out? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, Tim and I have been working with NJIT and other organizations, uh, and we've really learned a lot about what some of these uh, orgs are doing in training uh, kids into a more manufacturing-oriented uh, environment where the, the the job functions today aren't dark, dirty, and dangerous. Uh, there's opportunities uh, up the yin-yang for not only kids but for, for women. I mean, women is such an untapped pool. Right now we have yeah. 700 – the, the number, the, the talked number, I don't think it's the real number. The talked number is that we're short 700,000 people in manufacturing today. And in 10 years, if nothing happens, it's going to be 3 million. I don't even believe those numbers. I think it's worse than 700,000. <laughs> then you got, of well, course, the issue about uh, uh, the private prison systems taking jobs away from U.S. manufacturers where they're manufacturing for private enterprise, Wal- uh, Walmart, uh, Victoria's Secret, Target, and uh, they're buying it on pennies on the dollar per hour as opposed to $18 an hour in, in a, uh, a d- department store environment. Uh, it's, it's really horrifying, and uh, nobody's really doing anything about it. Nobody really cares about the prison system, for example. No, uh, no. Telling the audience that you know, we tried tracking this story and uncovering uh, this whole uh, situation that exists, you can't find anything in the news. You know, CNN, NBC, MSNBC, all of them, you know, mainstream, they don't want to talk about it because uh, apparently nobody cares about it. So they don't want to. They don't want to tell the story about something that nobody cares about. They'd rather repeat story after story about what's going on in Washington. And yeah. that's all that does is get a lot of people's blood boiling. <laughs> well, to go back to your point about the jobs report saying 227,000 jobs were created, um, that number actually is all jobs in uh, the U.S. economy, manufacturing hired 5,000. So manufacturing is, depending on who's counting, right. uh, somewhere between 11 and 12% of GDP and 30% of GDP if you count everything upstream and downstream. Right. Uh, they only brought on 5,000. They did bring on 11,000 in December. That, by the way, begins to reverse a trend where in 2016, manufacturing reduced jobs by 46,000. Now, there's this big concern that automation and robotics is, are going to wipe out jobs. Uh, I'm not sure it's true, and there's an interesting story in Manufacturing Economy Daily about a friend of ours who's been on the show, uh, Drew Greenblatt. He's now working with uh, NAM as well as being president of uh, Marlin Steel. And Marlin Steel made wire baskets and they hand-bent wire to make wire baskets. And Drew introduced automation because China made wire baskets at less than the cost of the materials for Marlin Steel to make wire baskets. So Marlin Steel was on the ropes. And Drew introduced automation, and they then discovered that wire baskets were in greater demand in other places. They came out with new products. The employees love it, and, in fact, the company went from a few employees to almost double up to 33. 33 doesn't sound like a big number, but for a company on the ropes, going from 17 employees to 33 employees, when you, after you introduce automation, that's what caused it. Correct. And the reason for it is new products, new markets, better cost controls, better products, End result, more jobs, not less jobs with automation. I think that could be the case across the country. Well, I, I think so. And, and, and again, as I pointed out about the old buggy whip manufacturer, you know, you know, God forbid we let the buggy whip manufacturer go uh, in, go down the toilet. Uh, we'd still be driving around in horse and buggies if it weren't for the fact that the automotive industry came. And almost all of those people went into the uh, automotive industry uh, doing other jobs and learning other That's right. jobs. <laughs> 
There was another story that I, I got a hold of, and drones is really a hot product. You know, it's uh, – I mean, I, I even saw one in a mail-order catalog that fits on the tip of your finger, and it's a bug. That's cool. <laughs> I mean, very cool stuff. But one of the things that drones are uh, really good for, and they're trying to use them in these particular uh, – uh, functions, and that's where there's dangerous work. Uh, for example, a smokestack has to be inspected periodically in many of the manufacturing locations. Well, that means they got to shut down the plant, they got to shut down the furnace or whatever is making all the smoke. But now they're using uh, drones. They don't have to shut down the uh, the equipment. They fly this, the drone to the top of a 200-foot tower. They, it has a camera on it. It takes a look. It says, everything's okay today. Nobody had to go up there. No one had to get uh, near, too near heat, fall into the tube, fall off of this ladder or whatever they're doing. And so there, there are safety issues that drones uh, can take over and are beginning to take over. And yet there are those who are looking at it and say, drones are taking our jobs. I don't think that they're looking at this uh, clearly. I would agree. Drones are taking the risk out of many jobs. They now use drones to fly out under bridges and look up under the bridge to see how the bridge is doing in terms of its metallurgical health instead of a human having to crawl around under that bridge and risk falling 700 feet if you happen to be underneath the uh, San Francisco Bay Bridge down to the surface of the water. The other place you see them is in the military. You know, what's over the next hill? Well, you either climb the hill and stick your head up and risk getting it blown off, or you fly a drone up and take a look over the hill. That's right. It's taking the risk out of manufacturing and infrastructure. That's a great device. By the way, they need someone to fly the dang drone. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's the and, job. And, and somebody had to make the drone. That's exactly right. And all the parts of the drone and the programming of the drone. That's where the jobs are. Well, we could have made them in China. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're 100% right. Uh, they're, they're not looking at all these things clearly. And they've got to buy into the fact, and I, I think that Manufacturing Day, which comes up the first Friday of every October, <clears throat> where they, they had close to 4,000 companies last October open up their doors to uh, retirees, to part-time workers, unemployed, to students in particular, um, teachers, parents, showing them what real manufacturing is like. And saying, you know, and think about it. Do you really want your son, you know, climbing up a, a smokestack to take a look down into the hole and see if everything's working okay? Or would you rather have him be making a drone that does it for him? So I, I right. think that the I don't think that the the public has true clarity on this uh, issue, and they're they're thinking they're thinking old school. I'm losing my job. I can you know my company's closed. Going to close. Well, you're going to think about picking yourself up, dusting yourself off, and uh, do something. Don't sit back and just pop another can and uh, wait for the government, because if you're going to wait for the government to help you, God help you. Oh, that's right. Well, you know, technology has always been thought of as the evil in manufacturing. Let's take a look at it for a moment. In the 1800s, this is a surprising number. 1800, the population of the United States was 5.5 million. By 1900, it was 76 million. By 2000, it was 281 million. All through that point, that passage of time, technology has come into being. We used to have buggy whips, as you said, Lou, horse and buggy. Then we had automobiles. Now Uber is talking about flying cars, and that's their latest project. What about cars that don't require require drivers? That's another one. That's right. Well, through all that passage of time, it's technology that drives industry. 
always has been and creates more and more jobs. We have more people employed today than existed in the U.S. in 1900. <laughs> so well, they forget they forget those numbers. <clears throat> well, I, I I I think that I've uh, I've run out of uh, stories because my blood pressure went up. It took a little while ago, and I said, Jesus Christ, I can't talk about this anymore. So um, I, I think that you you all who are listening got the message that you have to look at things differently. You have to look at things the way they are today and going forward. And right. uh, and, and take a look at the educational system. Take a look at what, like, the Germans are doing, where they have the dual educational system, where two days a week, it's all students, boys, girls, transgender, they all go to two days a week to a vocational training sessions and three days a week for liberal arts. So when they come out, they're pretty well-versed on perhaps a career path that tickles their fancy. And that's something that we should be looking to do here. It's going to cost a lot of money, but we got printing presses. Just print more money. <laughs> well, that's going to wrap us up for today's show. Lou's right. I'm going to steal Lou's line. You have to look at the future by glancing occasionally in the rear view mirror. <laughs> I've, I've made notoriety now thank you <laughs> so join us next week for Manufacturing Talk Radio we've enjoyed chatting on some of these subjects that we don't normally do commentary on but today we wanted to add a little different something to the show and we may carry this forward into future shows let us know how you liked it but thanks for listening to Manufacturing Talk Radio be well thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio you can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.